Hello and welcome to the First Time Founders Podcast, the show where we talk about how to take a business from nothing and grow it into something meaningful. Today we're talking to Rob Dumbleton. Rob's one of my good friends. He's a fellow early stage entrepreneur that recently exited. We, uh, we used to have monthly calls through the depths of the coronavirus crisis when he, I and a few of our other founder friends running relatively small businesses with big aspirations for figuring out how the hell we could deal with all of our customers being closed and our people having to go on furlough in many cases, um, while still trying to keep our investors on, on side and plan for, for growth to make sure that we were successful on the other side of that terrible market turbulence. Rob was an Accenture consultant before he stepped into entrepreneurship. He's a really bright, thoughtful guy. And I really think you'll enjoy this conversation in which we talk about the art of go to market um, Rob's obsessed with understanding customers in order to be able to apply data insights to know when to scale and how to scale and where to focus your limited resources as, a, as an early stage founder on the best opportunities that are most likely going to create um, growth momentum for you. He also talks a little bit about what it was like being a founding CEO that was then acquired and, and had to find a new role in a bigger business, which I thought was really interesting. So without further ado, uh, I really hope you enjoy this conversation between me and Rob Dumbleton. Dumbleton, welcome to the First Time Founders podcast. Thank you for doing this, my friend. No problem, Rob. Great to speak to you, mate. And we're matching as well. Look, we've got both got the uh, obligatory black crew neck t-shirts on right exactly right this is the recently exited first time founders uniform or the uh, or back or backups for westlife depending on which yeah. way you look at it yeah i don't fancy my chances in any sort of boy band mate <laughs> so listen before we before we start uh, talking all of our inside baseball because we've known each other for a long time should we should we bring the the listeners and what the viewers up to speed on on how we know each other and what your, what your journey's been. I mean, I'm, I'm boring people endlessly with mine, but it'd be great for folks to hear how you got into the startup game, you know, what the, what your startup was and, and, and ultimately how you um, landed it safely. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Well, I, I so I met, I met, um, uh, I guess, co-founder um, Chris Lloyd, who was highly technical. Um, I'd, I'd had a, um, a, a startup previously in the B2C space that did terribly um just a complete car crash <laughs> of a of a thing uh but you know you, again you, you take these learnings and you move on but because i've done that of course there was there was interest in in my experience um with him and um uh, chris lloyd for those of you who don't know he's he's a, a a genius in terms of technology engineering coding all that kind of stuff and um uh also video streaming and that was our initial space that we got into um just because that was his technical background and i had done a lot of enterprise consulting so we decided to kind of start uh, what was 27 partners at the time um and there were a couple of other people involved but mainly us two um and working with big enterprise clients to do video distribution and of course as, as you solve that kind of distribution challenge of how to get video across restricted bandwidth networks internal networks you need to surface it somewhere you need a nice ui ux of course software is the obvious choice for that to get it onto mobile get it onto desktop so we started building these kind of um enterprise grade communications platforms for the likes of sab miller and unilever 
um, and did a lot of consulting and started then to do or the, the, the scales tipped in terms of consulting revenue on into SaaS revenue because we were selling our platform and licensing some of these platforms over and over and you know one contracts with McDonald's and some really big customers we thought oh this is this is it's nice to have some revenue up front versus try and fill seats with you know billability and utilization of consultants um so we kind of went through that organic growth journey from 2012 to 2019 when we thought hang on a minute if we're going to really make this a goer we've got to do um, we've got to do SaaS and decide to flip the business from a consultancy hybrid agency software business to a pure SaaS business. Um, and we ran out for funding uh, in 2019, got institutional funding in late 2019 and then geared up for our big product launch in uh, March 2020. It's the learning market. Um, and of course, <laughs> late March, April, COVID hit. Um, so all of our best laid plans, um, we had to completely revise because it was all frontline learning platform. Uh, it was a frontline learning platform play. So, you know, blue collar workers out and about, airline staff, manufacturing staff, all that kind of stuff. And, and of course, everything went, uh, you know, lockdown. So we had to pivot, work out kind of, uh, you know, what, what our next our next kind of strategy was in that environment. Um, managed to survive COVID and then I, I think rather than roll the dice again and get more funding to go for that kind of next kind of step up, we, we decided to go for a trade sale um, of the business and in 2022, where are we now? Yeah, 23. Um, uh, we, sorry, 21, we sold the business in, in June 21 and um, to a health and safety software company that had a, a, a big gap in their product. They didn't have a, a good learning offering uh, or content delivery offering as well. Um, and that just has gone fantastically. Um, and we uh, that business, combined business, then exited uh, about eight weeks ago. Um, so it's been a, a wild ride journey of, of kind of selling uh, selling my own business and then exiting a, a a bigger business that we managed to contribute significantly to in terms of that success so it's been been fantastic really has learned so much as well which is great oh, it's an amazing experience and of course you and i had how often would you say we caught up kind of through the journey and our sort of founders um therapy yeah. sessions trading, trading yeah. strategies and tactics <laughs> yeah. about yeah. sort of monthly or so wasn't it for a, a yeah, couple we... of years through covid yeah, definitely through through COVID, we all needed a, a shoulder to cry on, and then and I think <laughs> yeah, and then I think um, I think you know we we, we that, that was that was very therapeutic actually having you know you Joel um, Luke uh, yeah you know, us four kind of just just I remember some of those calls like well, what the hell is going on kind of thing um, you know what do we do what's everyone what's everyone thinking furlough should we shouldn't we all that it's, it, just advice was great and just to share that was fantastic so yeah it was every month and then yeah then you and I have just I think kept in contact we've just got a shared love for b2b well I don't know b2b SaaS necessarily but I think you know founding businesses and, and that whole whole world but I can't I was trying to remember this as well I can't remember how we actually met in the first place because that must have been donkeys years ago that you and I met 
I can't remember. Yeah, how. well, <laughs> if you can. yeah, I can't remember. I think uh, I, th- I think we were introduced through a mutual connection because we had mm. we had sort of similar backgrounds, didn't we? In that we'd both come out of professional Corporate. services. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're, you're just always just a little bit better than me at everything. You played rugby a bit better than me. You're taller. <laughs> you're a bit taller than me. You went. You were a, a, actually not slightly bigger professional services firm. You were a much bigger professional services firm. So yeah. I felt like I always felt like Danny DeVito in Twins after. <laughs> <laughs> it's not far off it's not far off yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so i mean rob i talk about our background a bit but and you've alluded to your um to chris the sort of technical wizard in your business do you want to describe a bit about like your role specifically in terms of how you think about what your contribution was yeah no sure yeah so so i guess i guess i i i i, I was about to say i played the role of a, of a ceo i was the ceo of, of the <laughs> company um uh you know we uh, we both led the company, right? We both made made decisions, but I think based on, um, in fact, I don't know how, how you say it, like the, the, the kind of my character attributes are, are more geared towards sales and running businesses and operations and that kind of stuff um, than technology. Uh, and obviously that's where Chris had a natural groove. And I think that's where, in my opinion, a lot of startup businesses, I think two heads is better than one. In, in that space as well so to have a clear delineation of responsibility that one person kind of is an out and out um sales led or, or you know has that kind of operational running of the business good with numbers attention to detail I'm not saying that chris isn't all those things um but then having another person who is kind of super tech focused tech savvy you know can can create a product that's absolutely killer um, from, a, from a B2B SaaS um, perspective and from a software business perspective, I think that's that's kind of the the, the kind of the magic combination. But yeah, I I, um, I, I did my best to um, play the role of CEO, um, and, and, and obviously that's that involved running the business, having overall responsibility for staffing, for setting strategic goals, objectives um, of the business. Uh, for meeting with the board and shareholders that we had because we had uh, outside investment so updates board papers ceo reports that kind of thing um, lots of recruitment and hiring um, and just generally making sure that we're headed in the right direction in terms of our our strategy but that's actually that's the bit i wanted to talk about today the whole strategy piece because i think that's the that's the bit that in hindsight could have done a lot a lot better with but um yes that was my role um, and I also want to get into that because I think it's really interesting. I before we do that, would you then mind talking a little bit about what your role was post acquisition? I think that would be useful. I know it's a bit sort of back to front, but I think it'll be interesting for folks to hear what your most recent role was like, and then we can spend the rest of the conversation talking about the yeah, highs yeah. and lows and lefts and lefts and rights of being lefts and right. Yeah, yeah, ups and downs. Um, I, so it's going in as a we were a small business. Okay, so we had at our peak. I think we had about 25, maybe slightly more, uh, in terms of FTE. When we when we came to sell the business, we'd stripped it all the way back. Had had seven, I think, uh, individuals that moved over into the into the new business. So you know, as a an inexperienced person going into the scale up world, which the business that acquired us was, I'd only really done the startup uh, world. Um, going into a, a very experienced business with a, a very uh, experienced leadership team as a CEO's run their own business is very difficult or I found it to be very difficult and lots of people gave me this advice before this happened of you know you're not going to be 
the only game in town anymore. You're not going to be the person making <laughs> decisions. You know, there's already a CEO there, um, you know, and, and they've got, you know, infinitely more experience than you have um, in terms of career <laughs> and, you know, taking businesses on that journey. And of course, as you, as you go there, you think, yeah, but, you know, I'm, I'm going to really get in there and, and hopefully, you know, it's going to I'll make a massive contribution on that leadership team. But actually, that leadership team at that stage of business has already been structured in such a way that it is you know, high performing. Everything's kind of every piston's firing. So, you know, not not perfectly, of course, but nothing is. Um, and all of a sudden you're you're bringing another group of people into that mix. It's very hard to then integrate those individuals into that existing structure because they've just got to keep you can't stop. You've got to keep on going. Right. So I think as an incoming CEO into that into that world you've got to make sure that your business is integrated correctly and you've done this you've been through this you've got to make sure that yeah the uh, acquiring company knows your product inside out they can support it technically but then sales team can actually sell it right and it's got enough of a compelling offering a combined offering into the existing product stack that it makes everything you know not twice as better but five times as better with that combination um, and that takes a lot of sales enablement. There's a lot of upskilling, knowledge exchange that happens both technically, but then from a, you know, w- why are you selling this thing? What are you selling? And how does it apply to situations that, you know, your customers are already talking about? So me understanding the market, me understanding the customer base, but then um, their sales team uh, or their our sales team, marketing team, um, you know, implementation team, really understanding what the value prop is of the product we're bringing into the mix. So that's that's number one. Get that done, ticked. Right, that takes time. It always does because you don't disrupt what's going on because there's numbers to hit, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And then I think you got. And then I think you got to find like, where can you then add value? And I I kind of um, identified a gap in in capability. Um, and capacity somewhat in in the whole kind of sales analytics operations space where actually Mm -hmm. I could do add a lot of value in terms of identifying you know really uh, drilling down on where our ICP was in each region and actually what the size of the um, obtainable market was within those spaces looking at individual sales people performance based on you know time to close the, the kind of classic sales velocity metrics uh, and how you look at a combination of value, volume, um, time to close, uh, and conversion rates, and then you start to actually coach based on insight versus just coaching. So I created this kind of um, sales strategy, analytics, insights—you know, testing the hypothesis of our go-to markets, uh, of, our, of our kind of scale-up methodologies to say, well, actually, are we doing the right thing? globally should we be treating different markets in different ways and that that role was kind of coined vp of growth because it was all about high growth stage you know we were i think we were plus 10 million arr um upon acquisition um and and, you know when you're of that size that scale things are very different it's a very different way of doing business it's all process driven of, of how you how you get that repeatable motion in all functions of the business um whereas you know early stage businesses it's more about finding product market fit and go to market fit uh, and kind of reiterating that on a, on a cycle. So yeah, VP of growth was my last, last role. Well, was, uh, that was what I was going to ask you, actually. Do you think that part of the reason it's difficult as an incoming CEO of a really early stage business to a bigger business is because that early stage CEO, you do a bit of everything, don't you? And I suppose when you go into, I, I mean, 
I'd be interested in your view of the exec team at that 10 million annual recurring revenue stage is the point that everyone's got specialized roles that you haven't necessarily seen because you've, you, you know, the business that you've just presided over kind of need, needed you to do 30% of all of those specialized roles, yeah. but didn't need anyone to do a hundred percent. Exactly. You, you're, you're a jack of all trades when you're a, a founding CEO, you have to do, have to do absolutely everything, you know, customer <laughs> success calls and all that kind of stuff. Whereas the, I think, I think this is where um, kind of a bit of self-reflection and self-awareness of actually my, what I need to do better now as an individual is to build a more effective team around me to make me more successful. Right. Whereas, you know, previously and, and, and through lack of observation, I thought, well, it all, it all has to be me. Right. This is, this is mine. You know, I, I yeah. only, I can do this. And it's like, that's, that's not the game. Right. What, what you've got to do as a, as a scale up CEO and where our CEO um, did a really good job was building those, um, pillars of expertise around him people who are really strong in their domain so that they could or uh, ag- collectively agree what their objectives and, and, and you know everything was but actually there was all of the doing or most of the doing was done by those functional experts not that individual so there was time space for him to focus on you know skating to where the puck's going to be next uh, and I think that's that's the difference you're so you're so under it with all of the, the minutiae when you're a founding CEO or a founder of a company um, that you, you you kind of you don't have that freedom, that space to 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 think about what's next a lot of the time. Um, yeah. And, and I think that's where people just become completely, uh, you know, all consumed with with everything. And actually, you, you try and do everything, but you don't you don't do anything particularly well. You just try and do everything. <laughs> I, I definitely found the same thing. I mean, one of the, the, the um, you and I have obviously talked about this offline. You've very kindly given me advice as, you know, as I'm thinking about the next chapter of my career in life. And part of the sort of, um, part of my process has been to work out what is it that I learned from the Appster journey, going from sort of lawyer to start first time founder, and then trying to codify that so that I can sort of process my own learnings and also feel good about continuing to get value for the rest of my life from that experience by sharing it with others and as you know where I've sort of landed is um, that there's there's no one size fits all for how you build a company but there is a framework for the zero to one stage that that is um, is helpful and you can either use this framework or you can have your own framework but having no framework is fairly dangerous and as you know we talk about finding message market fit which doesn't require any product finding product market fit, which requires you to be able to actually deliver on the promise of the message you sold. And then of course, scaling up the organization. And it does seem to me, I'd be interested in your view. I think part of my struggles at Yapster, even though it ended up being an okay outcome was because I sort of jumped to try and scale to satisfy investor promises that I made in good faith Mm -hmm. that were just made way prematurely. Like if I'd have found really tight message market fit and then really tight product market fit, the organization would have been healthy enough early enough that I would have had the resources to then focus on building a team. Whereas when you try and scale before you've got the fundamentals, you're scaling without adequate resources to actually do the job properly. Is that a fair summary? Oh, absolutely. No, totally. totally. And no, there's no, there is, the, the beauty is that you know, people like you and other uh, winning by design methodology, uh, you know, some great stuff out there. I've just done CRO school on Pavilion as well. And it's all about this. There's no, there is now a, a 
a school of thinking around this that people are becoming more uh, aware of but but no one teaches you this stuff and, and you, know, you go for investment and you're right there's also a lot of those individuals are accountants they're not yes they've done businesses before and they've they've seen stuff but actually do they do they really understand the stages and i think actually it is quite simple when you break it down and you can't skip a step right and no. uh, exactly how you've just described it product message fit product market fit i think the other other probably area to to or, or to start to segment is your go to market as well because that's a separate space and then scale up scale up's all about repeatable processes um go to market somewhat is but but more more strategic of well, do you sell to enterprise do you you know is it different nuance per market in which case how do you mm -hmm. then take that you know, two stage selling field sales all that kind of stuff but the, the important bit is not to skip a step and to always come back and reiterate so every time you build a new feature you've got to make sure it fits the market and then you've got to assess whether or not that's taken your product from a, a mid-market sale to a an enterprise sale in which case it's a different go to market strategy that you've just done through a product and I, and I think a lot of people try and go from yeah we've won five six customers maybe a few more there's obviously a need for this right let's go scale let's bring in loads of salespeople and sell 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 sell, sell, sell. biggest error ever right I think <laughs> well, we... I, I, I did that I mean I added Same. like te I added 10 salespeople I burnt tons of capital relative to what oh. I had available it's it's absolutely nuts, and I think I think um, this there's some there's some great kind of um, the winning by design guys talk a lot about you know what the tipping point is between founder led selling, i.e. what could you what can mm. you physically and it, I, there's, obviously there's it depends on if you're if you're a volume based seller or actually you're looking at higher value, um, in which case volume's lower because then you know you just can't you just, one person can't accommodate volume but you can at the the higher value stuff so if you're selling to bigger businesses and you know, your acv is about 50k um you can do founder-led selling up to 5 million arr quite easily yeah, totally quite easy totally. and actually on reflection yes you could as long as you've got the supporting functions beneath you so so rather than bring loads of salespeople in because the, also the games change the markets change completely in terms of selling and especially in the SaaS world right it, now it's not about just going outbound calling people cold calling and they're oh yeah i'm interested in this because you know it's new technology and i want to look good in my business lots of businesses have now got SaaS platforms they're quite happy with what they've got they're just trying to kind of tweak it so it makes it even totally. better so it's more difficult buyers are more educated right so you have to play to what the what the market's doing and and, and that is about um content right that's about getting because people are consuming like this like this kind mm -hmm. of stuff hopefully um this kind of stuff they're consuming um, and, and they're becoming more educated um, as as individuals before they go in to make a, a purchasing decision. You know, we do it in the consumer world. We, we don't go and get sold to. Rarely do we do that. We, we do our research. We have a look online. You know, we, we shop around. And then if we're ready to go into a, a, you know, a shop or wherever it might be, on, on if, if people still do that, go into shops and buy stuff, <laughs> then you kind of know what you, you want already. You know what the benefits are. You don't need to be, you know, you don't need to be sold that. And that's where the B2B market is going in which case you know you, you need to think then about generating demand um not just capturing it because there's a very small percentage that are ready to buy so it's about creating that kind of warm brand educational um content layers where people trust and um you know understand it what it is you do and what you can do for them and then hopefully they'll come in and, and as a as a lead 
yeah, get go through that funnel, get qualified by um, someone who can say, actually, yeah, I need I need to understand you a bit more as a customer to see if we can accommodate that because we're not going to take the risk on any bad business because it has no longevity. And I think that whole process of investing in the top of the funnel first before you then try and get loads of salespeople in who are trying to close pretty crappy leads, pretty cold leads, is, is not what you want. You want to create that warmth, get that intent high, and then you know founders can convert that until you've got to that scale where hopefully your customers sell your product to other customers or prospects that you want to acquire. Um, why do you think we all skip through the stages? Like, Why is it so endemic well, in terms of just like hiring, hiring salespeople. Like, yeah, just why do why do we all rush through the stages? Like, because I remember you and I were super thoughtful about how we were building our businesses, right? Like, it's not like we weren't vociferously consuming information, mm. coachable. Like, I mean, you're very self-effacing. I like to think I'm occasionally humble. Like, I, I, I would, I admit to making mistakes. I admitted to making mistakes all the way through the journey. So, mm. I. I don't really know why I made that particular cock up and so did you and so do so many smart people that I know. The only conclusion I can come to is that the sort of VC industrial complex is entirely geared towards finding breakout companies and it just isn't really worth their time talking about the ugly duckling zero to one stage. You know, it like it's like, the, you know, the music industry is geared towards working with talent not teaching people that can't sing how to sing <laughs> i just I, I but i don't really understand why it is that none of us knew this stuff <laughs> yeah well well i think when you're at the go to market stage you certainly need to scale your sales teams right you, you can't totally do, do yeah, the of founder their stuff but if we're talking about about the naught to one um i think it's this there's an old school train of thought isn't there that you know a, a, a salesperson can come in and can make something happen that otherwise wouldn't have done and and I think mm-hmm. the market dynamics have completely changed in terms of, um, you know, pe- the people who have been in businesses now for 10 years, right, who started 10 years ago, who wouldn't have bought technology are of the generation that they're just thinking about technology the whole time. And now they're in a position to start buying technology. They're far more educated, right? They're, right. they're probably more willing to buy you know, uh, through a, a kind of on a transactional basis through a, a, a credit card on a on a portal than they are to meet a salesperson, to be schmoozed, to go through that process. You know, it's quite an old school way of doing business. I'm not saying people don't buy from people. They absolutely do still, right? Yeah, you still need to have that layer in there. But I think um, at the naught to one mil kind of um, phase, I think, again, the 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 focus is not on um, it's on attracting leads. It's not on going necessarily about hunting them. I think you need to prove that you can mm. through your outreach, right? Through your um, brand, through your, because these are all the kind of the tick boxes, you know, is, is your brand appropriate for the market you're operating in? Do people understand what your product does without someone talking to them? Right. In which case right. you've, you've addressed a, a need right there, right? There is pain. Are people searching for it? All of these kind of, um, early warning flags that would go off in someone's mind you, you don't need someone to necessarily go out and try to be selling that stuff people can go and find it themselves and i think that proves that there is appetite there without someone saying we need to find appetite we need to create appetite and of course of course you need to create 
a bit of drive otherwise no one would ever do anything but i, I think i think that i think that's probably why um that kind of old school way of thinking of well you know i've we've been really successful in this 10 million pound business because there's loads of salespeople. Well, can't we just do that for a naught to one million? No, they're completely no, different right, businesses. So, yeah. Do you think, do you think it's because, do you think investors have a role to play in this? The sort of seed investors and founders also, I mean, I, I, again, reflecting on my own situation, I, um, we won a few really good customers early. I now recognize that that wasn't as a result of repeatable process. Like in many cases, we just stumbled across, bleeding edge early adopters that happened mm. to be working in some fairly big referenceable brands. I then went out and raised money. I, I didn't tell any lies, but I told the investors about these early stage customers and the logos. I thought that they were going to be repeatable. The investors then understandably concluded it was going to be repeatable. And I suspect that's what then sucked me into try acting like it was repeatable when in actual fact, all of the evidence should have been saying to me, Rob, you haven't got, crisp message market fit or product market fit yet mm. um and i'm not enough of a sociopath <laughs> to to take the investor's money and then the next day just be like thanks for the million quid guys but actually this business is not ready to scale i'm just going to keep your money in the bank for another year until it is ready do you know what i mean yeah no i do i do i do i do and i, and I you know i i mean look the, the, the... <laughs> all of us are trying to find our way are learning as we go right uh, you know that's why we get advisors and investors in because they've done some of these things before and, and you know good non-execs and and um, investors will help help founders who have passion and purpose but not necessarily knowledge of the process you have to go through but you know yes they know more than than we will and be able to point these things out but but no one really knows this is this is the thing. No. So so you know your your point on um you know you, you had you had repeatability you you did you, you'd sold it like you say you had brand recognition you had um you know repeatable customers who were paying uh, multi year contracts um who were who were buying the same thing who had the same need right I'm, I'm going to come back to that whole needs piece in a minute because I think I think buying something versus buying it for a particular reason are two different things because i think that's that, so true i think we, we, too many in fact let's let's tackle it now i think too many people think because they've sold a product repeatable times that they've got a repeatable offering right they they've got <laughs> a repeatable product but they've not identified why necessarily why that person's really bought that thing and that's the difference is really understanding the impact that your product's going to make against the the need the job that someone's wanting to do because it could be different in regions it could be different in industries right in which case your messaging has to reflect that you have to double down on the things that have the most acute impact right and that is all based on the customer not what you've got to sell it's what the customer wants to buy your product can have no functional changes no code changes absolutely you know off the shelf but it can you can market it as addressing lots of different things because that's what matters and i think a lot of people go down this route we've got this killer product that does this 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 and this want to buy it and people are like uh no because i don't really understand <laughs> how it's gonna address my my challenges and, and, and my pain and and we don't go into enough about what is it the customer actually wants to do end of the line what impact is this going to make at a business 
and what can I use to like that's your repeatability is a, is a nice customer story again and again and again and again, again. not just someone's bought our thing um, I, I think that's right I think particularly with the sort of very earliest stage early adopters quite often what those early adopters have in common is they like new stuff and they like sort of riding shotgun with an entrepreneur that's mm. actually the mm. thing they have in common and you're right they can get satisfaction from the purchase process particularly if you're if the price is low enough which day one startups propositions usually are priced low or even free in many cases yeah. more pilots and the like um having 10 super early adopter customers like is really useful for for figuring out what you are yeah. but it isn't necessarily repeatable because there just aren't that many lunatics in meaningful companies that are able, willing and able to take on products yeah. particularly when you try and write raise the price which is why you suddenly can think you've got product market fit only to discover that you really don't you know ex ex exactly and, that, and i think that's where the expectation of any investor that that you know understanding those stages the stage that that you're really at as a company at that level and that and what you're all going into next is not automatically scale up actually it's probably at that stage not to one hopefully you have got you know, message market fit, product market fit, because you've, you've proven it with that many um, recurring customers that you then think about the go-to-market and the go-to-market again should be, well, well where, um, you know, where are we actually going to um, promote this and push this? Who to? What are our personas? You know, who's bought this previously? Are we addressing the right impact? Um, what does it actually do for the market? In which case we need to, um, uh, you know, think about the jobs that align to that um, uh, to those use cases, and try and get, identify other customers that have this uh, this challenge, this problem, and want to achieve this impact. Um, and I think that then then it's about structuring that um, kind of top of funnel, middle of funnel, bottom of funnel, um, closing process to make sure that it matches size of account. You know, if you've got if you're doing six-figure deals, for example, you need probably pretty hefty salespeople to do cradle to grave. If it's 15, 20k deals, then you're going to need a two-stage sales process, in which case it's a BDR, SDR, and probably a founder still. Um, and, and, and that's that's kind of all you need in that that scenario. And I think that's that's the investment of proving that the go-to-market works. Because if you're in the wrong market, or if you're, if you're targeting the wrong people, then you'll soon find that out. And if that sales pro, that little kind of micro sales process isn't working, then then also you can you can discover that at that stage. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think what's interesting is when you look at where the UK is relative to America. Um, not only has America sort of been generating very successful entrepreneurs for a long time, and the UK, with particularly in the last sort of 10, 15 years with our own IPO beam, has begun to do the same. Mm. There's also this other class of entrepreneurs, which I think you and I would be in, that have actually got you know might not have IPO. You've got a lot of really, um, you've got a lot of flying time to know this stuff. And so my sense is that the new first time founders coming through now have got a much, much wider selection of potential advisors to to tap into, to, to help them really understand where they are, to be as honest as possible with investors mm -hmm. and actually also screen and get the right investors that, that aren't putting them under pressure to delude themselves into thinking that they're slightly further ahead in the journey than they are. I, I always thought it was laughable that the Americans were so comfortable to fund things for years with no revenue 
until I realized how long it takes to mature certain types of businesses and yeah. why aggressively pursuing revenue prematurely is actually really harmful to long-term value. I always thought it was just go, go like yeah. Americanism nonsense. It, it's, I mean, it can be taken too far, Yeah, but done sensibly proper seed funding where you're not turning on the revenue machine yet is absolutely the right thing to do. Right. And that is not something people in the UK are generally very supportive of. No, no, I, I, I think, um, I think I'd, I'd tend to agree with that. And it, it reflects the maturity of the market, the, the SaaS market as well. I mean, I'm, I'm going to forget dates here and I'm sure people will point out that this is completely wrong, but you know, sales, <laughs> Salesforce were the first ones. This is right. Salesforce is the first ones to create a, a SaaS market recurring software as a service uh, market. Yeah, I, I think that's right. Or certainly, certainly the first to really popularize it. Ex- exactly. Which is, I think it was only in 2010, I'm, I'm going to say. Um, so it's, it's not been too long, right? And I think the, the volumes that we've got, and I have done this research, um, I think there's, there's 30,000 B2B SaaS or SaaS businesses um, globally, um, 2,000 in the UK, 2,000 in Canada, 20,000 in the US. Right. So that market, yes, it's a bigger market it is 10 times as big, of course. But um, there's it's been around for longer. It's more mature. There's more volume that people can learn from. Right. Make mistakes from. Um, yeah. In, in the US. And, and uh, you know, I think I think that the, the, the pool is a bit smaller over here. And again, the the. You're right. I think the, 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 the investments and, and, and what's going on. Or what's been going on over here we're trying to we're trying to replicate that success in the us the silicon valleys and, and things like that but we're just we're probably not just quite there yet or have the experience um i think at an investor level um to do that but there are there are some great investors out there who just focus on this and have the methodologies and provide the right advice and um things like that 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 you know i think are right for businesses like your, yours and mine were um but there are others who are you know their, their portfolio is just you know they've got ridiculous stuff in there that you know, there's no <laughs> there's no there's no comparability it's no different way of of doing things and then, and then you kind of you lose that advice and that um that nurture and that that steer that is really the what you're what you're what you're accepting a, a loss of equity it's not just the money um, yeah, I totally agree with that. So, Rob, we, I know we're, we're coming up on time. Before we let you escape, um, how can people how can people reach you? What should people, if they're minded to reach out, what should they reach out to you about? And we can maybe put some links in the in the show notes to make it easier. For yeah, sure. I mean, LinkedIn's obviously the best best place for it. Um, not not a connect a message. Um, I don't I don't tend to connect with people I don't know. Um, it should be your network, right? So why just have loads of people you don't know on there? Um, so they can reach out on, on, using a, just a, a message on on LinkedIn. Um, I'm I'm keen to help businesses at both startup and scale up stage to think about their um, go to market proposition and and where they are, assess their as is, think about the two B and the journey that they need to go on. So happy to have conversations with people about that because that's I'm really interested in that. I'm really interested in the data that sits behind all of that and how you architect your processes based on insights gathered from data you've got. And there's so much data that people are underutilizing. It's unbelievable. If only we, you know, we really mined and started to really analyze and splice and dice what we've got. I mean, 
be a different different game but then you know, people don't tend to do that or capture the data in the right way because they just want to get a deal closed and it's not actually take some time to, to really think about why did someone buy this like what was the driver because that's the thing you need to take to market not the features and functionality that your product does it's why people are willing to you know essentially risk their career to make a purchase um of a of a at all it's got to be based on an outcome i couldn't agree more and listen folks listening to this if you've got friends working in management consulting that will be quick to give you advice for god's sake call rob like he also works at accenture but actually has some blind time of his own to like inform inform some of the uh some of the stuff that goes in those pretty looking slides um rob thank you so much for doing this this has been amazing i hope we can lure you back if uh, as we get more and more subscribers to this thing happy to rob thank you